I wonder what thoughts you've got or what ideas or tips you've got maybe for people that want to get into research or want to integrate research with practice how, how you might encourage the next group of researchers yeah um please do <laughs> <laughs> um we are really happy when people have that interest and i think um you know uh kendall and i are both in the, the faculty in the couple and family therapy PhD program at Michigan State University. And, and that's kind of our philosophy that, you know, you need to um, be a great researcher and a great clinician uh, to do this work. Welcome to The Systemic Way. In today's episode, we're going to be speaking to Andrea Whittenborn and Kendall Holtrop. Andrea and Kendall are two of the editors of the Decade Review of the Efficacy and Effectiveness of Couple and Family Interventions in the Journal of Marriage and Family Therapy. To give you a little bit about each of them, Dr. Whittenborn is a Professor of Human Development and Family Studies. She also holds an appointment in the Division of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine at Michigan State University. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist and an AAMFT approved clinical supervisor. Dr. Whittenborn has received several awards for her research and mentoring of graduate students. Dr. Kendall Holtrop is an Associate Professor of Human Development and Family Studies. She has been a member of the editorial board for the JMFT and an advisory editor of Family Process. She is also a licensed family therapist and an AAMFT approved supervisor. So we had the opportunity, Cesar, to speak with both Andrea and Kendall about their contribution to the decade review. Um, what were some of your thoughts? Well, what struck me meeting with both of them is um, just how interesting they made research and how accessible their whole project has made research, you know, so bringing it into your practice, being able to look up a certain topic and saying, what is the evidence based around working with children with anxiety or ADHD um, and how this massive project that they've put together and they've overseen has, has been such a useful resource a fantastic resource really for practitioners who generally and myself very much included can be too busy really to to, to kind of look up in the most up-to-date research and saying how can I begin to apply some of this to my work so yeah so how much they were kind of infused by the idea um it's it was so what's the word really I wanted to say inspiring but that sounds boring it was it was it's sort of energizing in some way wasn't it to listen to them because they're they're so passionate they're so committed but when they talk they manage to bring research alive in a way that makes well made me enthusiastic about it and I'm naturally quite reluctant I think to to go there with research it sort of made it make sense to me in a way that I think I've struggled with mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so in this episode we 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 talk about family therapy research in general the kind of benefits of using research and encouraging clinicians and practitioners to have a bit more of a research mind um 
then we we really kind of focus on the decade review how this came about how andrea and kendall um found themselves in a position to to lead on this project the bit that i found most interesting actually was the the methodological approaches that guided this this decade review so these specific things that kendall and andrea had put in place to say this is how we're going to look at the evidence base i found it was really kind of innovative ideas which i found really really fascinating yeah they really tried to sort of go to new places didn't they in terms of thinking about how how to approach that mm. and i think that's a really interesting aspect as well and and we're lucky enough to to hear them talk about that yeah so yeah we hope you will enjoy this episode and do look up the the review there's a it's a it's a it's a big piece of work but there's also a, a very useful introduction in the magazine of journal of family therapy that that kind of sum, summarizes some of their findings which is also really accessible and useful so yeah we hope you will enjoy the episode Welcome to The Systemic Way, Kendall and Andrea. It's a real privilege and pleasure to have you with us. It'd be wonderful if you could let us know who you are and maybe how you got into systemic psychotherapy. Well, hi, everybody. It's really lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Um, My name is Kendall Holtrap, and I'm an associate professor in the Human Development and Family Studies Department at Michigan State University uh, in the U.S., And yeah, I feel like I could talk a long time about how I got to be uh, where I am, but I think that the short version is that uh, my background was in psychology and undergrad, um, but that kind of like traditional focus in terms of uh, the individual just wasn't really resonating with my lived experience, which was much more about, you know, people in the context of relationships, in the context of families. And then along the way, um, had some wonderful um, advising over into couple and family therapy. And once I kind of got into the field and my eyes were open to more of a systemic lens, it just fit. And yeah, the rest is history. Yeah. Um, Hi, everyone. I'm Andrea Wittenborn. I'm a professor in the Couple and Family Therapy Program in the Department of Human Development Family Studies at Michigan State University, Um, also the director of the Couple and Family Therapy PhD Program. And um, Kendall and I have been talking a little bit about our origin story, so it's um, kind of fun to to um, share a little bit of this. And we have, I think, um, some similarities there in that we both sort of started out in this like individual psychology world and, um, you know, found that it just didn't quite fit with the way that we understood the world. And um, I think for me, you know, I, um, there were, you know, I just feel like I understand myself and the world in relation to others and, you know, in relation to um, people that we move through this world with and understand each other through context, um, the context that we're embedded in and those kinds of things um, felt like it came through in what we here in the U.S. Um, call as couple and family therapy. I know systemic family therapy is more common for you, but um, when I looked into that profession, it just felt like that was more aligned with my own understanding of of people and how we um, manage our well being. And so, 
there were, you know, I think different experiences through my life that had a pretty profound impact on me that kind of led me into my work and, you know, things like volunteering for social service agency where I was fairly young and doing home visits and really um, seeing, you know, the difficult mental health struggles that people were experiencing and um, you know, doing home visits later on with children who were in situations where they were, you know, um, uh, not, um, didn't have great experiences growing up and, and there were issues with abuse and things that I hadn't seen before. Um, and so as a, a high school student, as a college student, you know, having these experiences, I think really moved me into, into this work and this interest in being in a helping profession. And then, um, you know, my later kind of explorations took me into systemic family therapy. Yeah. And I was thinking like, once, once you get into the therapy room too, like once you have the opportunity to like bring in, you know, have a couple in the room, have a parent and child, have a family, just feels like you have so much more to work with. You have kind of such a such a bigger, more complete picture than when you're kind of just limited to that, like that, that, that one kind of entry versus the whole system. So I feel like you get into the therapy room and it just really, you know, it makes sense. And it just, it feels like it just opens so many more doors for, for change. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, we, so we're hoping to have a discussion around this, the special review, the decade review of the effectiveness and efficacy of couple and family therapy interventions um, and, and the use of research and the benefits of research in, in, in our field. It'd be great to kind of, before we get into that conversation, just to hear about your own relationship to research and how you both got into doing research and, and what, what you think it means for family therapy. You want to go first, Andrea? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this lately and, and, um, you know, you try to connect the dots over time to kind of how you ended up here. And research is such a big part of my passion and interest and what I love to do. And, and, um, from my early experiences, I, no one in my family had had a four-year degree and, and education wasn't a big part of growing up. So I always think about, so how did I end up here? You know, but um, I think part of it is I just like, um, you know, we all have these uh, goals in life and characteristics that we try to move towards. I think integrity has always been something that, you know, I really desired um, and wanted to, um, you know, be. And I, I feel like that kind of connected me to this piece about research that I feel like I wanted to go into a helping profession, but I felt like I owed it to my community to provide them the best help that I could. Um, that, you know, the interventions that we were providing were safe and were effective. And um, that, you know, being able to um, to do that was really important to me. And so I think it, you know, that I found, um, you know, a real connection there. And I think I just continued to, I was really privileged to learn from some of the best scholars and uh, systemic family therapy. And, um, you know, they continue to develop, help me develop my skill set. And um, I 
just found a real connection there with that work. Yeah, I I really like how you use the word integrity. I was kind of thinking accountability, but I feel like you you pegged it with integrity there. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. So confession time is that I was not always interested in doing research. I don't even think I really, really figured out that I wanted to be a researcher and kind of move into this profession until late in my PhD program. I was probably doing my dissertation when I really really, you know, kind of got bit by the, by the research bug. Um, cause I think some of my original early experiences with research just felt like it was all, I don't know, it was all like data checking and felt just really disconnected from this idea of really making a difference in families, making a difference in communities, making a difference with underserved and marginalized populations. Um, and for me, it was really during my graduate program, I had the opportunity to um, get involved in some community engaged research with my mentor. We were working, we were actually um, doing some qualitative research with Latino immigrant families and meeting um, in school libraries and in church basements and really learning from these caregivers about like, what is it like to be a Latino immigrant parent right now? And kind of like, what sorts of support what are you looking for um, from a parenting intervention from, you know, parent uh, parenting interventionists? And it was kind of like talking with them and learning from them that I really kind of my eyes were open to the impact that we can have as researchers and to the way that we can um, conduct research so that that it's accountable to communities so that we're really making a difference Um with folks that, you know, have historically been marginalized, um, haven't had access to mental health services, haven't had access to evidence-based uh, treatments for themselves, for their families. Um, and that was kind of what really uh, kind of launched my my interest in research um, was, I think, was, was the families themselves. And I have to say that you've already transformed my thinking about research just by in the first few minutes of our podcast because you I mean I suppose there's just something about making it really well also I'd written down the word integrity so there was something as well from you Andrea of just how um it speaks to the ethics actually of our, ourselves as as practitioners and and wanting to to really support and help the people that we're working with and trusting that what we're doing is going to make a difference which is not how I thought about it before we've started this conversation or or I struggle at times, which made me think, what what do you think are some of the challenges for family therapists in, in terms of their relationship and thoughts around research? Because I don't think I'm the only one who might have felt like that. <laughs> well, well, I want to first um, connect what you just mm-hmm. said, that the sort of the ethics of this and mm-hmm. um, and then go into that question. And I think that's right. Like, that's how I feel about this, that it, it's our ethical duty. And I think, you know, one of the things that we always think about in terms of our ethical codes, you know, we know, like, do no harm. That's the first thing, right? We, we do no harm. And, and I see that and like conceptualize that in a way where I think, that means that we can't um, provide harmful interventions. Our interventions have to be safe and our interventions have to work. So they have to be effective. And I, I mean, I think um, there are lots of other ways we can harm people, but I think um, that, you know, we, we are very clear about not harming people in, in all these other ways. But I, I think um, 
you know, those are two things that that our research often focuses on clinical research. Is it safe and effective? And um, so I, you know, I think that research is just critically important for us as family therapists and um, as systemic family therapists to really to understand that are we helping people as well as we can and and um, is what we're doing safe I mean thinking about like the ways that we've thought about how to address trauma for example in the past and how research has unfolded over time to to show us <laughs> for example um, how some of our interventions were actually triggering to people in ways that were harmful. And so, um, you know, all of those, that kind of understanding comes about through our research and through uh, really like asking people how they're experiencing these interventions that we're trying to deliver, the care that we're trying to give. So I think that, you know, um, as family therapists, I hope that, um, um you know, I know that there may be some some challenges or some um, reluctance sometimes to, um, like, you know, think about I guess um, uh, research as passionately as as we do, <laughs> but but um, you know, I think we all our our agenda i think for all of us is to provide the best care that we can to people and um you know we can work together to do that yeah so this this big question right around kind of like like what like what are some of the barriers that are kind of causing this gap between research and and, and use and practice and i mean i feel like i feel like there's a number of i feel like there's a number of them right um, but I do think, um, in terms of like accountability for us as researchers, I, I mean, I do understand that a lot of the research that we do, you know, is focused on, oh, it's focused on, you know, averages, it's focused on kind of overall trends, it's focused on generalized effect sizes, um, because that's in some ways kind of the nature of, of research where in practice, you know, you're it's highly individualized and it needs to be tailored and it needs to be um, really um, relevant to the unique conditions of the client who's in the, who's in our therapy room. And I think we haven't done a great job as researchers in terms of, of showing how we can kind of get from step A to step B to kind of really connecting those dots between kind of here's, you know, here's, here's what we're learning, kind of here are these findings that we have, and then making sure that we kind of don't stop there, and then making sure that we talk more, think more, and kind of collaborate more around that translation of, of research into practice. I mean, I don't know if we want to get into this now. I mean, there's a whole field of dissemination and implementation science that Andrew and I are pretty uh, passionate about that, that does that, and I feel like we we need to be doing we need to be doing more of of that not just sort of like here you go here's a research finding i published it in a peer review journal like go and you know use that tomorrow with your with your couple um and so i feel like that's that's one barrier and that's one responsibility i think that we have as researchers to to help um better translate that into practice yeah i really appreciate what you shared kendall i was thinking like i mean first for it's kind of as if research is catching up to practice in a lot of ways, because for decades and decades, we were just 
really wanting to show that systemic family therapy worked, right? So that's the first thing that we were doing. And that involved a lot of what Kendall said, these like looking at groups and their, you know, um, kind of group means and changes over time and things. And and um, I think the exciting thing now is like, we're so far, we're past that. We know that systemic family therapy works and it works for a lot of disorders and conditions and um, problems that people are facing. And so now um, I think, you know, we're sort of moving into these exciting times where we're trying to understand a little bit more about how we can, um, like our, I think our research is more mimicking of practice and how clinicians approach their cases. So what are the unique needs of a given person or, um, you know, groups of people and how can we provide them the best care? Because we know that, um, adapting care to, you know, individuals' needs and um, people's context is always more effective than not. So in research, then we're trying to study, like, how do we adapt treatments to certain, you know, types of people, um, couples and families? And, um, and we're trying to figure out, yeah, we've had all of this research on how it works and we're starting to figure out more about who it works for and how to tailor things for people but now we need to know what are the best strategies for actually moving this into the community um so we can't just stop there um you know what how do we train people how do we uh, make sure that the interventions fit within specific settings that people are practicing in. And um, so all of those questions, I think research is, our research is getting there and starting to take up that. Um, and that's pretty exciting. Is this, is this the term external validity that you, you kind of talk about? Is that what we're kind of discussing here about ideas? So and part, Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Um, I think we, um, you know, want to know if our, you know, when I talked about years and years ago, we were focused on, does it work? Well, Mm -hmm. we were doing this in um, a way that we prioritized internal validity, meaning that we had more control settings. We wanted to see like, does this new idea for an intervention actually create change? And so we weren't ready to, you know, take it out to the um, community at large. We were still kind of in our our lab settings, like seeing if this works. And I think we've had plenty of data to show that, you know, um, our interventions work, that our models and theories are very useful and um that uh, we've gotten a better better handle on that. So we've continued to um, focus more, prioritize more about external validity and seeing, um, you know, does this work in community settings? Um, are we uh, being realistic with the way that we provide this intervention and test it? And um, are we lessening our, you know, we often have a uh, in those early studies, a long list of exclusion criteria that if people have dual diagnoses or if people have, you know, um, more challenging um, uh, difficulties, we'll just remove them from the study. Mm-hmm. And so we're working towards not doing that and uh, making sure that our populations that we're studying are 
more um, similar to what people would see in the community. But I think that uh, the type of work that Kendall and I were just talking about is called um, dissemination and implementation research. So there's a component of um, that type of work prioritizing external validity, but it's a it's actually a kind of a whole new area of research that we haven't had very long. There's never really been a profession um, or a, um, a, a, a type of work that was interested in thinking about how we take these effective interventions and transport them into the community. Um, no one's really felt responsible for that, I don't think, in the past. And so this dissemination, dissemination implementation group, we call it DNI, um, sort of stemmed up and um, it's an interdisciplinary group of, of people that are focused on, um, you know, how do we actually take what we know is effective in, in our um, studies and then effectively and successfully move it into communities. Very exciting, isn't it? Very mm -hmm. exciting developments. And um, is that a trend within systemic thinkers or is it wider than, wider than that? Because it makes sense that systemic researchers are interested in that particular way. I feel like we are uniquely equipped as systemic thinkers and systemic researchers to to do this kind of thing because I mean there are so many there are so many systems involved and so many characteristics and interactions between different pieces that we have to take into account. So DNI talks about. Um, for instance, like the characteristics of the intervention that makes a difference. And um, it looks at, you know, who are the practitioners and what agencies are those practitioners embedded in? And, you know, who are the, who are the agent, like what does agency administration look like and kind of what community structures and funding models are they embedded in and how do all these things kind of interact and intersect to create, you know, different patterns and processes and, and feedback loops as part of this. And so, yeah, you can see where there's a lot of these kind of systemic components um, that are integral to integral to this. And so it's definitely not um, just specific to yeah. us, as Andrea was talking about, it has a very diverse background, even into like agriculture and other fields that we might not necessarily think. Um, but I, I do feel like I do, Andrea and I, we've talked about this. We feel like we're, we are uniquely positioned to um, innovate in the dissemination and implementation kind of work, I think, because of our systemic lens. Mm. And I'm, I'm hearing influences in that, what you've just mentioned in the review itself, um, particularly the, the methods that you kind of use. But before we get into that, could we maybe introduced what the special review was that you'd done. So it's a decade review of the efficacy and effectiveness of, of um, couple of family therapy. And but, also like how it came about. Yeah, I understand. This is the fourth edition, right? So yeah, maybe some of the history of how it came about and also how you both kind of got involved in it. Mm. Yeah, so um, we're excited. This is the fourth issue. So this is um, in the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy. They've taken up the charge um, as a as a source for um, making sure that we have a clear and systematic review of the efficacy and effectiveness of couple and family interventions. And um, so we, um, you know, we're invited by the standing uh, editor-in-chief of 
the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy to edit this special issue. Um, we were very excited to to take up that charge and um you know it, it, with its long-standing history i think there's a there's been a long um you know focus and rigor and making sure that we're providing a clear um summary of you know the state of the evidence to stakeholders and including um you know probably most importantly clinicians and making sure that 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 information gets disseminated back to them yeah i think it also represents you know an opportunity to really advocate for the importance of of what we do for the importance of relational and systemic interventions um you know showing that they can be efficacious showing that they're effective um yeah i think can can promote a lot of benefits um you know for the field but i think you know obviously for for the public too um advocating to policymakers advocating to third party payers for for what we do helping to um yeah just be able to be able to support this work on a lot of different on a lot of different fronts. Yeah. And so with this issue, there's um, you know, 14 articles. It's in the January 2022 issue of the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy. And um, you know, there are articles that focus on couple and family interventions for a variety of disorders and conditions um, from disruptive behavioral health problems, uh, disruptive behavior problems to um, anxiety disorders and couple distress. And um, so it it provides, you know, a, a nice overview of the current state of the evidence on couple and family interventions for all of these problems. And then the final one was focused more on how to um, think about, you know, <laughs> Uh, disparities in, in um, mental health and how to and to kind of take a critical, I think, view of, or uh, review of what we've been doing in terms of the research for um, minoritized populations. Yes, and then we started with our introductory chapter too, right? So that was a part of the fourteen articles in there where we kind of lay out our our yeah, kind of like the methods, kind of how this special issue came to be how we kind of selected the different conditions, the different authors kind of went about with the reviews and then provide kind of a, an overview, kind of cliffs notes of the outcomes. If for those folks who, you know, aren't going to have the time to read all 13 of the articles, which I would highly recommend, they're all, they're all amazing, um, kind of summarize um, the, the evidence too. So that's the, yeah, those are all 14 of the, the articles. Mm. And how, how did you kind of choose or select or decide what what are going to be the things what who what are going to be these 14 articles did you know like when you first got asked the project or how yeah how did how did it all sort of come about between you both well that introductory article will give you the very clean um, perspective on what happened we'll show you some of that we'll lift the curtain mm -hmm. and tell you about some of the messiness um, I don't know if we have pictures, Kendall. I wish we did, but um, you know, of us just sitting in front of big boards, whiteboards with um, scribbled notes everywhere, and um, we'd have assignments each week for each other to go back and review the empirical literature and review 
grant databases for like, you know, funders um, to see what current trends are and um, look at the major like handbooks in our um, field. And you know, we just we scoured <laughs> lots of sources um, and, and um, spent a lot of time reviewing all of the previous special issues on the efficacy and effectiveness of couple and family therapy interventions um, to try to really come to like what is the um, most appropriate list of disorders and conditions to focus on in this issue and, and how, you know, we were really interested in how can we um, maintain some alignment and continuity from, you know, previous issues. But on those topics that um, have had a lot of research come out and haven't been addressed in previous issues, how can we find space? You know, that's kind of the thing with journal issues. You're just trying to find space wherever you can. You're kind of limited. So how can we um, find space to really, um, you know, show the great work that's been done on, on um, other disorders and conditions that had not been addressed in previous issues? Yeah, you're transporting me back to those those giant boards with all the ideas listed and color coding and circles and and arrows and I feel like I remember during that process us really, you know, trying to prioritize um conditions and disorders that were most relevant to public health that we thought would be most relevant to, you know, couple family therapy, to systemic psychotherapy. Um yeah, and then that kind of being our our guiding aim. And then also kind of in some of the later stages thinking, you know, well, we really needed to also select conditions and disorders that have enough research in the past decade to like warrant uh, uh, like an article dedicated to that in the in the special issue. And then also, you know, some of the conditions and disorders that we ran across historically had a lot of research, but for one reason or another in the last decade, there just wasn't a ton of stuff. And so sometimes we set those on the back burner too. Again, we just wanted to make sure that, you know, the the ones that got picked were the ones were um, that were, yeah, the most relevant and then kind of had the most action in the past decade. It's such a, you cover such a wide variety of conditions um is that the, is that the biggest list that the decades ever had like it was, it was so vast um and i know you mentioned them to say this is the first one in this that's being included in in these reviews um was that important for you to 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 include such a vast and wide amount of conditions i think um yeah, it definitely covered more conditions than previous issues. Um, and we tried to be strategic in our approach to making that happen. Um, some, for example, in past issues had kind of separated different age groups of populations. And so there might be two articles on the same um, disorder or condition, but it would be covering different age groups and things. So we tried to... Um, you know, we made a strategic decision that each article would cover the lifespan. And um, so that could allow us more space to address new issues. And I think that was, I mean, I think that was really important to us. It was, um, you know, there's more research that had been done on other um, conditions and not just over the past decade that this focused on, but, you know, before that as well, that um, work had been done that, hadn't been showcased in this issue. And 
I think um, it helps clinicians to have the information at their fingertips. It helps scholars to know. I mean, these systematic reviews are really important for scholars as well because you get a sense of what research has been done. People are doing a very, very careful, you know, systematic review review of all of the evidence. And um, so you can quickly, you know, take a look at these and, and get um, a lot of information about what research has been done and where we need to go in the future. And then it's really helpful to our, um, you know, profession to be able to take this to other stakeholders and, um, you know, um, funders and uh, private payers and um, just to make a case for um, what we can do and showcase mm -hmm. the effectiveness of our work. I, I suppose going a bit deeper in terms of thinking of the selection, I'm just wondering about like authors and what thoughts and conversations you had around who might be selected and um, for this. Yeah, so um, these were all these were all such hard decisions. Um, so what we really wanted to do was, I mean, our overarching goal was to identif identify just respected scholars who were conducting research in each of these areas. And so, you know, we looked in a lot of the same places that we looked in order to to identify the the conditions that we we're choosing. So we you know we just looked at who was you know publishing empirical research on the efficacy and effectiveness of um, these interventions uh, in the past 10 years, you know, we looked at, we also considered, you know, who was involved in some of the prior reviews, some of specifically some of the decade reviews for JMFT. We looked again at, um, you know, people who are active in terms of grants, research projects in these different areas, um, and then ultimately use that to, to narrow down a list of authors that we invited to lead the different articles um, and then once we made those invitations to authors, we also just really encouraged them to develop authorship teams around them um, that would, you know, support the breadth within some of these chapters. So, you know, the author themselves might be, you know, an expert in in a piece of this condition. Um, so I'm thinking, for instance, around like the, the article on family violence includes both um, IPCV, like intimate partner violence and child maltreatment. And so the lead author kind of was an expert more on IPV and she reached out and, you know, asked another co-author who was more of an expert in child maltreatment, or, you know, maybe some folks are more of an expert in the adult literature and they invited members who were more, um, experts in youth and we like uh in terms of diverse social locations to diversity in terms of professional uh like development where folks are in their career trajectories um really kind of encourage them to take the lead in, in building these authorship teams around them that would enable them to really conduct these these rigorous uh reviews that they were kind of charged with for for each of these topics in the introduction chapter that you both wrote you spoke about the importance of trying to get a diverse group in the authorships and the authors what was that process like was was it something that you you managed to to do was it was it a successful was is it quite a diverse group of authors it was something that was very important to us um but I don't know if we'd rate ourselves as successful. <laughs> um, I think, you know, both of us have actually spent, um, you know, invested time in, there's a great 
programmed through um, the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy and uh, SAMHSA funder here in the U.S. that is um, developing a pipeline and has developed a minority fellowship program to, um, you know, offer uh, important training and um, opportunities to um, people that study diverse populations and, and people from diverse backgrounds. And um, I think for us, um, you know, our hope was with this issue that we could invite authors to then develop a team that, you know, might incorporate people from, um, you know, different backgrounds, people of color, or people from um, different, you know, sexual orientation backgrounds or early scholars and, you know, um, just to have a more diverse uh, authorship team, because I think that's how we'll see the needle move in like what's actually addressed in the literature and the research um, is to really share the power in the and um, these kinds of situations. And so uh, it, it was important to us. And I think um, we just shared with authors that, you know, that would that would be a, a goal of ours is to, you know, have a very diverse authorship team. But I think that the truth is our workforce is continuing to be diversified. And so I think, you know, we're continuing to find ways to meet those goals. So like this minority fellowship um, program, you know, is something we invest our times and our time in and hope that like we can actually help to move that needle in terms of our workforce as well. I think without a without a diverse workforce, we're gonna um, you know continue to probably not see much change in the populations that are studied in our research. Mm -hmm. That's that's great to hear and um, connecting it to moving the needle. I really I really mm -hmm. like that. Um, from hearing what you're talking about, you gave a lot of autonomy to the authors, right? Uh, to kind of take the lead and in terms of choosing their own author, authorship group, but also in the inclusion and exclusion criteria where they each kind of authorship group was allowed to create their own criteria, right? Um, I'm interested in that decision. And what is is that different from different uh, from the other review, decade reviews? And it was a, a decision that you made for, for what impact, I guess, I, I guess I'm trying to ask. Yeah, the, the body of literature, like for each of these different conditions and disorders that were selected were so different that it just didn't seem like it would, you know, be in the best interest of, of the special issue as a whole to just, you know, set really, really strict and standard criteria um, across. And we just really wanted to, um, you know, allow space for the expertise of, of the author and the authorship teams in each of these different areas. So yeah, we did give uh, the authors a lot of, a lot of leeway in terms of being able to make the choices that they thought were best to truly represent where the literature is in their field. And, um, you know, some did choose different uh, sets of criteria, right? So for instance, some um, of the articles, some of the authors chose to only include studies where uh, they had been randomized control trials, right? Um, because there was so much there, you know, there was so much literature in that area that they could kind of choose that as a bar 
um, in terms of like a more a more rigorous kind of bar for for inclusion in the studies. But other authors were like, no, you know, this my the body of research in my area isn't quite there. Um, and for one reason or other, they said we want to be more inclusive of study designs. You know, like we think studies that might not be at the RCT level, you know, are still you know, really important to include at this, at this stage of the review. Um, and so, so they choose, they chose to do that. Um, and so we tried to balance that flexibility in terms of, of the studies to include with, you know, some consistency across the different inclusion exclusion criteria. So for instance, we did ask everybody to make sure to focus on um, kind of couple or family-based relational processes. Um, so kind of ruling out things like pharmacological interventions, teacher-based interventions, interventions that were primarily individually focused. Um, we did try to get everybody on board with a, the, a standardized review period. So reviewing the literature from January, 2010 to December 2019. As Andrea talked about earlier, we also were really invested in this lifespan approach. And so really kind of focusing on a condition and then reviewing all the literature, um, even like targeting, you know, youth all the way up through adulthood and, and integrating that into, into the article. Um, and then we also um, tried to um, encourage authors to review um, all the literature kind of worldwide that was uh, published in English. And so we kind of, yeah, we did try to balance, um, you know, some, some flexibility with some, some structure in that, that eligibility criteria decision-making. I'm interested in some of the innovations that you also put as editors. So kind of following on from what you're saying, Kendall, about balancing the structure and, um, but the two things that really stuck out for me was the intervention categories that you kind of chose and how you kind of structured that where you, you didn't use I can't remember the exact wording it was like the, the branded approaches or the brand you know you moved away from that um but also the evidence-based classifications that seems extremely innovative and I don't know I've not seen research done in such a way um a collective kind of research and I don't know where that idea come from and why 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 you decided to go with it and what what impact you think both of those things have had in the overall kind of outcome of the review those are great questions um i guess i'll start by speaking to the the intervention categories kind of piece and i don't know if this is a term that y'all are familiar with but sometimes we hear this idea of model wars over here where it's like these these branded interventions are kind of being pitted against one another sort of dueling to the death or, or something dramatic <laughs> like that. Um, and so our decision to use intervention categories was to kind of try to try to sidestep the model war um, kind of debate. And so this idea was to ask authors to generate these kind of broader intervention categories that were um, like groups of uh, groups of intervention that shared like an underlying theory that shared mechanism of action or kind of that shared other salient characteristics. So instead of, for instance, you know, reviewing the literature on brief strategic family therapy, or instead of reviewing the literature on generation PMTO, like these specific models, you know, taking a step back and trying to identify these more general categories, things like um, behavioral family focused treatment, which can encompass a number of, of brand name models or looking at, you know, group-based parent training interventions as, as a category. Um, and we, we made that decision for uh, a number of reasons. I think one salient reason um, 
was we had, you know, we'd been, we'd been reading about this, right. We'd been reading through some other reviews and kind of reading how other editors had conceptualized this. And um, we were really um, kind of swayed by this idea that that doing this at the intervention category level would hopefully um, be more uh, like more usable for stakeholders. Um, So like, let's say that the highest level of um, like intervention, like the highest, uh, like the most well-rated intervention category for um, a specific, uh, a specific disorder. If we just focus on a program and then we're like, folks are kind of looking around in their, in their community and they're thinking like, okay, like we need this one specific program and maybe they can access it, but maybe they can't access, access it. And then like, kind of what do they do? But if they have the opportunity select to select a, a type of intervention, then the idea was that that would be more readily available. That they could find, you know, like something that fits that category of intervention approach that would be available to them in the community, and that would kind of help them. That would either help them access um, like the best, um, most like well-established type of treatment, and from the other end too, that it would also allow providers to be able to. Um, find ways to offer the most well-established type of intervention to their clients without, you know, having to run out and do like this specific model over here and this specific model over there. Um, so, yeah, so trying to kind of facilitate better better use and kind of more easy application of this. Um, so that that's kind of the overall, that was sort of the overarching idea behind it. And then, like I mentioned before, um, this this like other other scholars were kind of doing this and we kind of bought into this idea and really thought it would be a good fit for um the interventions that we were reviewing in terms of like the family of of couple and family interventions and just kind of to add sort of anecdotally i think to this conversation um you know this wasn't an easy decision i think this was something that we really had to think very carefully about and I would say that probably um, any of the past issues, the um, you know other three issues, it would not have been a great approach. Um, and that's because our interventions can we keep developing more interventions. and um, um, now we're at a place where we're not just talking about um, like in the work I do, we're often just talking about a behavioral approach or attachment approach and you know that and there was kind of one of each um and so now uh, we've really expanded the uh, interventions that are available to people and so we're able to think about our interventions in a different way and and we like we realize that making this decision um may not always be the popular, most popular choice, but it, it also comes with some dangers and some risk that, um, it, you know, it could send the message that all interventions within a category are equivalent. And we wanted to be really careful to, you know, and you'll see this in our introduction article, that that's not the message that we want to send. We want to be really clear that even though, interventions may be grouped into a certain category they are not all equivalent um we either may not have the research to um you know suggest equivalency among all these uh interventions or um you know the interventions may be 
more or less developed. And so we wanted to be really clear about that. So you'll see in our introduction article, we um, introduce this topic and we say, this is the approach we take. But then at the, the end of our article, we come back and say, we want to be really clear here though, that, you know, this is um, kind of some of the risks that come with this. And, and it was a difficult decision to make, but it felt like the right time to make this switch. And um, I think in the end, we feel really good about it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And you've, I guess you started talking a little bit about the end and endings. And I was just wondering, because I know our time is coming to a close. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, the findings from the review. Before we get yeah. there, did you want to talk about the evidence-based classifications because again that was another like real innovative part of the research and how you, you made it as I mean what, what were they well-established and experimental just I'm, I'm interested in seeing this whiteboard of your thinking like <laughs> I would love to have seen that as a picture but yeah the evidence-based sorry Julie to that in there but the the evidence-based classifications part and, and what that brought to the review yeah, so we can speak um, briefly to that for sure. So I think, you know, there have been um, standardized criteria that have been developed to determine the level of an, of the base of like, the evidence that is available for different interventions. And so um, we were, you know, uh, it was really important to us to use that framework to have authors to um, rather than just talk about the articles that they found, I mean, um, you know, that's uh, um, one approach, I guess. We could have had them um, just discuss the articles that they found over the past 10 years, but we wanted to really make this relevant to clinicians and, and to other stakeholders. And um, so we wanted to use this kind of standardized criteria to show like, actually what level is this evidence for this category of interventions and um so we pulled from you know existing criteria that were able to like really clearly specify um you know five different levels of evidence that um, were from you know well established interventions or um, categories of intervention to those with questionable efficacy and um you know then there there are requirements that the categories of intervention have to meet within each of those um, levels of evidence. So, you know, they have to have at least, for example, to be well-established, you know, at least two independent, uh, um, that means like different research teams and different settings have to have um, done, you know, each uh, rigorous study on the intervention to show that it was effective. Uh, we know that things like, um, you know, allegiance to a model can affect how, uh, you know, um, our practice as clinicians and and we suspect, you know, it may have something to, uh, could introduce some bias into research as well. So making sure that the two independent groups have, um, you know, studied this intervention and in different settings and, um, you know, there's a whole list of uh, making sure that it involved randomized controlled trials. So, um, you know, 
uh, different characteristics like that. And we thought that, that was a, um, you know, appropriate way to really have um, scholars carefully consider not only the last decade of research, but all of the research that um, has been done on these interventions and to use this criteria to tell us, you know, how effective um, and, you know, what level of evidence we have for each of these interventions or, or categories. See, I even slip in my, in my language categories of interventions. And that was challenging. Actually, that was a new challenge for the scholars to figure out how to use this criteria with categories of intervention rather than intervention themselves. And uh, so trying to figure out, um, you know, when does the evidence rise to a certain level when you're looking at these categories and how can we be really careful? I think we were, we um, attempted to be pretty conservative overall, I think, in our um, use of this criteria to make sure that we weren't overstating facts and um, the level of evidence. Yeah, I feel like all of our authors deserve a huge shout out for applying these criteria because, um, you know, it, it took a lot of work on their part. Um, but yeah, we really we really think it, they do a great job of taking a lot of information and um, uh, like kind of paring it down into easily kind of digestible uh, categories um, that hopefully, yeah, are, are, are user friendly. Um, also, I feel like having classifying the evidence using these categories also kind of helps our, our set of reviews communicate with other reviews that are done, um, kind of focused on, on different types of interventions or on different populations. So we can kind of, you know, show, hey, we're, you know, we're also, we have all these wonderful couple and family interventions in this well-established category too. So I think it's useful for consistency and in comparison. And just one other thing that I liked about these uh, these levels of evidence was the idea that, yeah, like level one is most well-established and then it's like a little less established, a little less than that, a little less than that. But it also provides a category for research um, if there's research out there showing interventions that are of questionable efficacy. So this is idea like there's, there's good rigorous research out there, but we actually found that this intervention doesn't work. When we didn't actually classify a lot of the research in that in this review, but to me, the fact that it was there and it could capture those studies if they did arise was also really important. Um, and so just a few other things to to kind of weave into to what Andrea explained. Yeah, yeah I was hoping you'd mention that, Kendall, because I, I kind of slipped my... Um, uh, there when I was describing that, but I, I think that's also something Kendall and I have found really interesting that there's this idea about de-implementation research. So, um, things that we've finding, we're finding don't work or maybe aren't safe that we, um, remove those from our community practices. And so, um, we didn't actually find any, um, any interventions fit in that category in this review, but it was really important to have that category because, um, you know, it's quite possible that we could find that some of our interventions are either not effective or not safe. And as we continue to learn more, and so that, um, that definitely, we hope that that's continued in the future in, in this yeah. review. It really speaks to the integrity, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. What you mentioned. Absolutely, yeah. and and it's been, it is so 
fascinating and I appreciate the time that you've taken to to go through the review in such detail to explain the sort of all the thinking that you put into selecting and deciding on um on criterias and categories um so thank you and and I guess it'd be really helpful just to know briefly some of the findings maybe from we've heard all about the work and the thinking that's gone into it yeah well I mean the the findings are very good news for couple and family interventions because um we uh, have identified just a number of well-established interventions. So uh, for interventions targeting youth, we have well-established interventions focused on uh, disruptive behavior problems, ADHD, anxiety, depression, bipolar, suicidal ideation and behavior, substance use disorders, and traumatic event exposure. Um, So many you know, like highly relevant, highly prevalent kinds of conditions that we see a lot of um, of families in our uh, clinical spaces looking for support with. Um, and then for adults, uh, Andrea, I'm just like stealing all the thunder here. Do you want to do these or do you want me to keep going? <laughs> um, and so, Go for, okay, we have a well-established interventions for depressive disorders, substance use disorders, traumatic event exposure, couple relationship education, couple relationship distress, um, and interventions to prevent the reoccurrence of child maltreatment. So yeah, it's it's very exciting stuff. Um, and I feel like really highlights the importance of the systemic and relational work that we do. I wish everyone could see the smiles on your faces as you spoke about <laughs> those findings, but you can probably hear it in your tone. Uh, well, it's, um, yeah, it's really, really exciting to be, I think at this point, um, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's just wonderful to see. And I think, um, the findings that Kendall shared too, we worked really hard to find ways to share those in a, like an easily digestible way. And so, um, people who are interested can find a summary table in our introductory article in the um, JMFT January 2022 issue. We also um, wrote an article for the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapies uh, Family Therapy Magazine, and there's a nice uh, summary table in that. And so, um, yeah, we're we're very excited, and and we um, you know want to get this these uh, findings out to lots of stakeholders who it can benefit. Mm. I mean, yeah, but that article in the magazine, but also in your introduction, it just, it's made this so accessible. That's what I got from it, reading reading the review and reading that article in the magazine, that it kind of just made it so easy for me to get the information I wanted to get um, and to understand what, happened in the last 10 years you know and it feels like a, a massive kind of what well one is a, like a homage to the field and you know a recognition of what family therapy the, the, the progress in family mm-hmm. therapy but also it feels like a really useful tool for clinicians to say and you've spoken about it in, in this conversation about as a kind of snapshot of to, just to look and say okay I've, I'm working with this kind of condition this difficulty what are some of the interventions so thank you. I do want to say that to be mm. honest. I, I, I really um, enjoyed looking at this and, and, and we'll explore it in greater detail probably for the next 10 years, I imagine, until the next one comes out. But I, I, I wonder um, what thoughts you've got or what 
ideas or tips you've got maybe for people that want to get into research or want to apply some of their clinical work and, and to, to do some research around their clinical work to integrate research with practice what you might how, how you might encourage the next group of researchers yeah um please do <laughs> <laughs> um we are really happy when people have that interest and i think um you know uh kendall and i are both in the, the faculty in the couple and family therapy PhD program at Michigan State University. And, and that's kind of our philosophy that, you know, you need to um, be a great researcher and a great clinician uh, to do this work. Um, we, you know, really work on training our students in evidence-based approaches and, in, you know, in in-depth training and, and uh, use of these approaches even though they're in a PhD program, um, you know, especially because they're in a PhD program, maybe in addition to clinical research methods. And um, so, you know, I, I just am always sharing with my students that we need more of this work. Um, you know, there are lots of other people that are trained in other disciplines or other specializations that can tell us things about how relationships work and, um, you know, can help us think about things like that. But we are uniquely equipped to understand how our interventions work and um, to make sure that the care people receive is effective. And so I, you know, strongly encourage people with that interest to uh, join in and um, contribute to clinical research. And for those who are, you know, I think in part of your question, um, I kind of got the sense that you're thinking about clinicians too, like how uh, might clinicians be involved in I think what we know now is that, um, you know, there have been huge trends in the growth of research teams. Um, so you used to see individual investigators sitting around um, maybe with their students and uh, doing work. And now you see huge collaboratory teams of, um, you know, uh, scholars and clinicians and people with lots of different types of expertise. And those are the teams that we know are producing the best research. And, um, you know, each uh, um, position, each person in each different role brings such a wealth of expertise. And, and that's how things like external validity are going to improve and how we're going to disseminate and implement these findings. So um, I say team up <laughs> and, um, you know, keep contributing to this important work. Yes, I feel like that's our mantra, like intervention sciences, team science, and the importance of collaboration. Um, and also just to add to all those excellent points, I loved your points about external validity, dissemination, and implementation. We can also take advantage of like community-engaged research approaches and things like public academic partnerships. Um, I know that Andrea and I have both had um, the opportunity to be involved in some of that. Some of the work that I do is um, in partnership with um, folks across the state of Michigan. They're in the public mental health system. Um, they're, you know, delivering this intervention, uh, this evidence-based intervention to families across the state. And they specialize in like the implementation and the delivery and they come alongside and work with me and I help them with the evaluation and I help them with um, like the data gathering and, and the research design and 
together we each bring unique strengths to to the project and because we're working together we're really able to learn how the intervention's working in this very real world setting like who it's working well for kind of under what conditions and how we can you know continue to to train it in in a way that's effective and sustainable um it's it's through those it's through that that collaboration thank you i feel like in a way Part of what I'm taking away from this conversation is I almost feel like I've got like a timeline with research. Like I feel I've gone to like the past of where it started, where it's come from, where we're at and where you in in this review, one of the things of the ways of moving forward. Yeah. So it's sort of it's brought some movement. It's brought it alive in a completely different way. So thank you. I really it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Mm-hmm. Are you going to say something, mm-hmm. Cesar? Yeah, just echoing it. I mean, I've got so many images of my mind. Mm-hmm. I'm, I feel very infused about research much more than I did before mm-hmm. the conversation. But I mean, it, it, reading reading your work had really kind of invigorated something for me because I, I felt research is something we've done in our master's course. Mm-hmm. But the way it's designed in the UK, I don't know if it's like that in the US, but you kind of become a researcher when you do the PhD. That's when you're you're mainly focused on it. Um, so it felt something quite at times beyond me. Like I struggled through it in my masters, enjoyed parts of it, but it felt like something that was not. Um, I, I mean, in my day to day practice, something I'm not very connected to, mm. or had the possibility of saying, "Okay, I'm doing this piece of work. Let me do a research around it." Yeah, that was the word I was thinking as well. Like, I didn't really feel like I had a connection to it, whereas now I feel like I've got much more of a connection to it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Kendall's story of going in the basement and speaking to the... Yeah. uh, That's what I want to do now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I've also got an image. I I don't know. I should share this, but the research bug, bitten by the research bug. I'm getting like (laughs) Spider-Man vibes of, you know, you've got this uh, special power to go and go out there. Andrea and I are both accepting graduate students, so <laughs> if, oh, man. If, if you want to go into the, if you want to get bitten by the research bug, well, we could support you in this journey. No, can we, can we spend just a little bit more time talking about kind of like ideas for the future and next uh, kind yeah, of next absolutely. steps before we, yeah. before we, I know, I know we're getting close on time, but I feel like I would like to. Absolutely. To like what, what would be the hopes for the next steps of for research or I mean wherever you want to go with it yeah well don't tell us wherever we want to go I feel like we could do a whole nother a whole nother episode on this but I think maybe we can highlight a few of the kind of most salient critical takeaways um so I think one area that we saw sort of like some progress in terms of moving the needle in this over this last decade, you know, continues to be in that area of including uh, diverse and minoritized participants in research. And I think that that's also an area that we um, identified as just like a critical need and a critical priority moving forward. Um, Things like, yeah, like the um, including more LGBTQ plus uh, participants as the, as like the focal population in these research studies, more uh, racially and ethnically minoritized families, even more like non-maternal caregivers and a lot of the family work that we do. Um, But not only just including them as participants in the studies, but really using uh, like critically critically conscious research methods that are really relevant and appropriate for these populations. So making sure that we're 
developing interventions for these folks, uh, making sure that we're culturally adapting interventions for these populations and doing it in ways that are engaging these community members, giving them seats at the table in terms of the design of the study and um, the participation in terms of carrying it out and disseminating these interventions. Um, I think that we're both really passionate about there. Um, Dr. Lakey Dwanyan led an article in the special issue kind of around that. Um, and a lot of the other um, article authors also spoke to this. And so um, as much as we want to recognize the progress that's been made over the past decade, I think what we did highlight was there's so much, there's there, there still remains such a critical need to, to do this into the future. I think that that's an important charge for, for the field, um, not only just in terms of the research, but I mean, most critically to inform, inform practice, right? Like we need to have interventions that are, have, you know, empirical support that are established for, for, for all types of, all types of diverse families. Like, I think that's speaking back to this theme of like an ethical imperative. Um, so I think that that certainly needs to be at the forefront of our research agendas moving forward. Yeah. I'm so glad that you, you, um, shared that and that was certainly on our our minds as we were reviewing the literature and um, a major goal for what we hope to see in the future and um, we hope that uh, you know we keep seeing systematic reviews sharing that um, a lot of our populations being studied are white middle class you know hetero um, couples for example and families and and so we hope that future systematic reviews will um be saying something different and you know it, it's really um uh something that needs to happen and and, and now so we're we're really um you know uh, wanting to see that kind of work in the future that in addition to that um you know we noticed that that there were more well-established interventions for youth across most of the conditions that were studied, but there were um, there was less research on interventions for adults. And um, you know, for example, things like anxiety disorders and bipolar, ADHD, suicidal ideation were all conditions that um, you know we need more research on adults. And I think I know you know. For example, in the U.S., um, the funding priorities often haven't aligned with that. So there's there's reasons for, um, you know, why youth and families have often been studied more than um, adults and couples. Um, and you know, we're we also we had a one of the articles was on health conditions, and they had a very tall task of looking at. Um, you know, high mortality health conditions. And they reviewed all of those that included family involvement and didn't find any well-established interventions. And um, I know, you know, that it's been a bit of a newer focus, not, not terribly new, but, um, you know, comparatively. So I think we'll continue to see research in that area. And I look forward to seeing that. Um, and I think we always, you know, we still keep moving beyond this question of um, does the intervention work? And we keep wanting to figure out, you know, how it works and for whom um, to make sure that, that uh, you know, we're um, providing these or we're studying how to best um, 
treat different people. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about seeing and I encourage future research in these areas. I think as a final question, we were hoping to know like where where would you signpost people to kind of find out some more if they want, if they're hungry, they can apply obviously to the graduate program, <laughs> get involved. <laughs> yeah, so for um, this work in particular, definitely turn to the January 2022 issue of the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy. All articles are currently free, but I believe that begins, or that is if you access them before January 1st um, of 2023. Is that right, Kendall? You're looking at me. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's the case. And then, um, uh, but though that is a, a great source. Um, the authors did a tremendous job. And so um reviewing those articles, I think each in each article we ask the authors to include a, a table that provides um you know standardized information so people can go through each article and look at for each condition um what studies did the authors find and um really see uh quickly the evidence that is available for um, these different conditions and, and disorders. Lovely. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure meeting with you both and, and talking about this huge piece of work. I mean, I don't know how you got through it when I hear of all the different elements to it and all the different authors involved um, and that you're still, I assume, friends after the whole process. <laughs> 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 yeah thank, thank you both as well it's been so nice to talk with you about this and we always enjoy talking about this issue and um it, it was definitely a long journey but we're really proud of how it turned out yeah thank you both so much for um, inviting us here thank you so much for your interest and enthusiasm all your uh just wonderful questions um this has has been a lot of fun to to talk about and just yeah really appreciate all your enthusiasm and, and support for this work thank you. all right thank you so much thank you, thank you kendall take, take care, care. Yeah. bye, bye.